Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, pubcasters. Ollie Dugmore here with a little weekend treat. And that treat is an interview with comedian Nish Kumar, who swung by Joe Towers a couple of weeks ago. For this bonus episode of the pubcast, Nish and I chatted about Suella Braverman, racism, and what keeps him hopeful about British politics. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Nish Kumar, hello. How's it going? Nice to see you, Ollie. Likewise. Good to be here. Likewise, yeah, very glad to have you here. Um, The reason for your visit, you've got a podcast coming out. That's right. Tell us all about it. Uh, It's uh, called Pod Save the United Kingdom, um, and it's the uh, British um, offshoot of the American podcast, Pod Save America. Mm. So we've taken an American thing and turned it British. It's a reverse Steve Carell. <laughs> I've, uh, uh, we've taken something that was in America and now we've turned it back yeah, into a, yeah. a, a British trying, format. Trying to turn it into a slightly smaller market. So <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, yeah. I'm not really sure the, fin- the financial explanation I, for it I is. I keep asking them, what are you people thinking? But they're into it. <laughs> Fine, take, take the money and run, bro. Um, yeah. So what's the format? What's, what's going to be happening? Who are you doing it with? So it's me and my friend Coco Khan, who's a journalist, um, and we're going to be, we're basically going to be doing a weekly topical show about the news in the UK and in the process trying to digest the week's news and then speak to some qualified people uh, to try and interpret what the hell is going on. Because I, unlike certain high-profile members of the Conservative Party, I am convinced this country has not had enough of experts. And so I'm determined to get some expertise on the podcast. Very good. Um, I understand that the podcast is going to be characterised by a degree of idealism. Yeah. So what is there to be hopeful about (laughs) in British politics? I think, listen, I think that... um, I don't think I've ever been cynical about politics. And even the comedy that I've done about it, I would like to think, comes from a place of crushed idealism and uh, frustrated optimism. Um, so I always still feel that there is there are things to be hopeful about. And, you know, if you look at, there's a sort of coming generation of people that have are determined to change things. I get a lot of um, inspiration 
from the enthusiasm of younger people and participating in protest movements um, about the climate, um, participating in strike action. That, that's the kind of collective action uh, that I think is, gives you cause for optimism. So not a great degree of optimism in British electoral politics, party politics. That's, <laughs> is, that what I, is that what I can take from your, from your yeah, answer to that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, listen, I think it's been, I was saying to somebody the other day that the, the last time I got beaten up uh, was in uh, Burger King in Charing Cross Station Sounds in like 2007. Sounds a horrible story. Yeah, it's a horrible story. But the, a guy tried to start a fight with my friend I sort of decided that I was going to defend him because I temporarily forgot what my body was like. <laughs> and I, the guy hit me and I hit him with the only object in my hand, which at the time was a rolled up copy of the Guardian newspaper. Fantastic. And I just kept hitting him with the Guardian newspaper. And that is what it's felt like being interested in politics for the last 13 years. It's just, you just keep wait, like hitting people with ideas and then just getting repeatedly smashed in the face. Mm. But I'm also, I still, you know, I still, one of the things that Coco and I talk a lot about is that there is still, like government and politics still has the power to transform people's lives. So I, I don't think I'll ever be somebody who's like, don't bother voting, they're all as bad as each other. I, I still believe in, you know, in, I believe in wide sweeping change that can be pushed by activists and pressure groups. And I believe in, the, there is a direct line to the smaller incremental changes that can be affected by democratic participation and voting. Um, if, if voting wasn't important, they wouldn't be bringing in ID bills to make it harder to vote. Mm. Do, you know what I, do you know what I mean? Like, in a weird way, you should take, we should all take some inspiration from this because it, why on earth would they be trying to make it more difficult to vote if there wasn't some meaningful power in democratic participation. Mm. Pod Save America interviewed Barack Obama. Yeah. Who would be your dream interview on this podcast? I mean, I, I, I actually don't know who the dream, I, I think probably, to be honest with you, the dream interview for us would be somebody who could explain what on earth has happened in Britain in the last 13 years. I don't know who I don't, yeah, I don't know who that is, but I think it would be somebody who could interpret what has happened uh, in the last 13 years. I'm not expecting Rishi Sunak to appear on the podcast. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Shoot for the moon if you fall your land you'll land on the stars. What would you ask him if you did get him on? How fucking dare you? <laughs> yeah. And no. that'd, be, that'd be the last question yeah. as well. Yeah, that'd be it? the beginning and yeah. end of the interview. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, there's a lot to ask Rishi Sunak about. There's a lot to ask him about in terms of, um, I think the first question, I mean, this may be specific to the day that we're recording, but I guess the first question to answer is, to what extent are your wife's financial interests something that should be declared mm. on the official register of ministerial interests? Why has it taken this amount of time uh, for companies that may have access to 10 Downing Street to be declared on the official register of ministerial interests? Um, I, I mean, I think that that would be, that's the sort of question that I would like to ask him, but I'm not sure it's the sort of question he particularly is interested in answering. I think that's fair. When you, um decided to become a comedian, comedian, started out in comedy, did you expect that you would become 
as political as you are. Was that always the intention or have you kind of ended up in this place as a result of other forces? I always liked comedy about politics. I think one of the great things about being a comedy fan, which I was and still am, is that you know you can watch a comedy show or a stand-up comedian or a sketch show that is completely disconnected from reality and is all about just bringing people happiness and joy or you can watch my comedy. <laughs> Which, that, that's the joy of comedy, is that as long as you make people laugh, it doesn't matter the route you take. So it can be something that's deliberately escapist. It can be something that's just designed to entertain an audience, which is so great. Like, that's such an important part of comedy. Or you can really bum people out, mm. and that's the route that I've taken. So I always liked the variety that comedy offers in terms of the subject matter, the way, you know, I grew up at a time where like, things like the Mighty Boosh were on TV and there was so much delightful absurdism in what they were doing. Mm. And, and at the same time, you know, I grew up watching, you know, Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, The Thick of It, Stuart Lee stand up. It's stuff that really engaged with um, political issues or issues of social importance. Um, and I think the pleasure of comedy is that all of that's available to you and neither one uh, is more valid or more important than the other. But the way that I felt comfortable doing comedy was about stuff that, uh, that I was interested in subject matter wise. So it drifted towards politics kind of naturally. Mm. Um, but it took a few years of learning the mechanics of joke writing before you can apply it to uh, com more complicated subject matter. What issues would you like the podcast to focus on then? You mentioned it there that you can sort of strike out and point people's attention towards certain things. What are you going to look to focus on? Well, I think obviously the climate crisis is everything we should be talking about at all points. It does feel, it does feel a bit strange in some ways to be talking about anything else when the planet that we live on is slowly melting like it does feel it does feel a bit weird even sometimes when you know like i was struggling to do a software update on my computer the other day and i was going like this is and then i remembered oh yeah we're all gonna die <laughs> <laughs> the planet's gonna explode <laughs> um it's it, it, yeah so things like the climate crisis i think also i think inequality is a huge subject that should be consistently discussed and i think that there is there's an important thing that happened uh, after the financial crisis. Um, you know, a huge hole in the public finances is created by a banking bailout. And the decision that was made uh, by the Cameron government has been presented as an economic one, but it was absolutely a political decision. Because if you choose to make up that deficit by increasing taxes, you're putting a burden on a section of society that can afford to bear the burden. But if you choose to make up that deficit by cutting government spending, you are forcing that burden onto the poorest people in society. You're cutting back programs that ultimately benefit the least well off. And so what you're saying is the burden for paying this off is gonna fall on people who can't really afford to do it. And that, that seems to me to be the original sin of the last 13 years in British politics. Um, and I think that that's so much at the core of everything that's happened since then. Um, and I think that it's so important that we ask who ultimately is picking up the cheque. Because from where I'm standing, it seems like 
the emphasis for paying off the financial crisis fell to poor people. And then when there was anger raised about that, they were told pretty directly that the reason that this had happened was immigrants and immigration. And you're, it's, it's essentially been a story of robbing the poor and then trying to get them to turn on each other. And so I think, and I think a lot of the core of that is financial inequality. That narrative is uh, repeating itself now, right? Yeah. Another, another recession, blame it on people in small boats coming across yeah, the just, English Channel. Yeah, just over, unless one of the people in the small boats was fucking Liz Truss, <laughs> I don't think we can necessarily blame the small boats crossing for the current most recent hole that's been blasted into the British public finances. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of these narratives, what role does the British media play? in all of this? I mean, listen, I think that, um, I, I feel like we're sort of constantly told that the, there's this liberal media and there's a kind of uh, elite that runs the press. I mean, that, that doesn't seem to include the publishers behind the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Express, um, the Murdoch media empire, it seems, uh, perverse to suggest that they haven't had a massive role in shaping our national conversation in the last 13 years and building a consensus behind a lot of these policies. You know, there they, they had to be a consensus built behind the idea that austerity was an economic necessity when it was brought in. And the only way that you can build that consensus is if you have, you know, newspapers constantly trumpeting this idea that David Cameron was a sort of financial genius, as opposed to a shiny-faced fraudster who got who won the lottery ticket of life. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Get out of my pub! It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Um, what do you think the Daily Mail's legacy is in modern Britain, if it has one at all? The, I, I mean, I think, listen, I think... I think the Daily Mail has a very, has historically not necessarily, I'll put this as diplomatically as I can. Historically, the Daily Mail has not covered itself in glory. Right. And at times, in the 20th century particularly, it had a chequered record in terms of who it was backing. <laughs> you're, you're, you're talking about Nazis. Hurrah for the black shirts. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, listen, I think... In, the sort of more recent years, uh, I think that papers like The Mail and The Sun have actively tried to sow societal divisions. And that's, and they've, 
pushed us towards a place where opinion is made out to be objective truth. You know, that it is a, an objective truth that there is too much immigration in the United Kingdom, that it is an objective truth that government spending is, uh, that the government is profligate and government spending has to be cut. Um, and I think that, I think that is a very, that's been a very exhausting part of the last 13 years, is sort of seeing those papers push their opinion as, um, you know, unassailable fact. You've uh, made a few headlines in the mail as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think in terms of like keeping our uh, uh, facts out of opinion, we should declare an interest for me and I fucking can't stand the cunts. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> one way of putting it. Uh, less diplomatic than what you previously, what you previously said about them. That's my vape on the floor. Delightful. Um, do, you have, do you have a favourite headline from the mail that they've written about you? Uh, my favourite headline, I mean, listen, this, some of the stuff, there was one article where they did like a sort of investigation into the political bias of the MASH report, and you're just like, surely there's something more pertinent than you could be. I, I think the thing that I always found interesting was they constantly said, no one watches this show, but here's 2,000 words on a detailed <laughs> investigation about it. And you sort of think one of those two things has to be true. Only yeah. one of those things could possibly be true. Um, my favourite headline is, when they got rid of the MASH report, the Sun newspaper ran the headline, Nish MASH Bosh. And I had to say, respect. You know, I don't like that newspaper, but in that specific instance, you have to say, they, they, they do what they do and they do it well. That's a good headline from them, isn't Nish it? Nish Mash is a good headline. It is a good headline. Um, so when, when the Mash Report did get cancelled, the BBC since then, I mean, you could possibly argue that it's been sort of on a downwards trajectory. And I'm not just talking about the cultural output, I'm talking about you know, BBC News, all the other things. What are your feelings towards the organisation now? Not just the journalism, but also you know, the entertainment and that sort of, sort of side of things as well. I mean, uh, you'll always, I will always defend the BBC and defend the existence of the licence fee. And I think that, um, uh, you know, I think it, it, it separating out the news and the cultural output, I think that the existence of a licence fee has enabled the BBC to fund some work that otherwise might not have come out of the commercial sector. I mean, if you look at something like The Office and you look at Gervais and Merchant's track record at the time, it's a public broadcaster that's able to say to them, yes, we will give you that money because they're able to take that risk because their funding models are secure. And if you go anyway, if you go to America and talk to Americans, the perception of the BBC as an institution is so wildly different. In America, here it's something that we all complain about constantly. But in America, it's particularly in kind of people I meet in comedy and entertainment, it's seen as a kind of kite mark of quality, really. And organisations like AMC and HBO have at different points cited the funding model of the BBC as an example of how they want to be financed. You get this unshakable subscriber base and then that allows you to take risks because you aren't worrying about commercial revenue. Um, so I still really believe in the BBC. I think that no organisation makes good decisions when a gun is pointed at its head. No organisation or individual makes good decisions when there is somebody across the table from you pointing a loaded gun at you. And that's what the government has done with the BBC and Channel 4. You know, I, I think that the 
the Channel 4 privatisation, which I think mercifully has now been tabled, should never have been considered, really, because it was garbled nonsense. And I think that... But I think the problem is we're getting to a situation where people on the left particularly are losing, have lost a lot of confidence in the BBC. Um, and I would still say to those people, I understand absolutely that frustration. But at the same time, the BBC is a public utility and we don't, we, we want to try and keep it and fight for it rather than letting it wither and die on the vine because ultimately for certain sections of the conservative press, they want rid of the BBC because it's an immovable competition and so they want rid of it. And so I always think it's very strange when you read articles or opinions or editorial pieces in right-wing newspapers that they say, well, I, I don't think the BBC is particularly functional. This is just my opinion. And you're like, yeah, of course it's your opinion. You, you, want, you want this thing to be destroyed. It's like, you know, it's like asking like Thanos' opinion about half the universe. You want to remove it. Yeah. So why on earth would we take you seriously when you talk about it? But, you know, there are definitely moments where I, I think in the way that the kind of Gary Lineker thing was handled, it, there was... You know, there was the, there was no need for the BBC to come down so hard the way that it did, and there was and the government the government's actions around that were very concerning, mainly just because it, it alarmed me how little conservative ministers seem to understand about what match of the day is. One of the one of the conservative ministers actually tweeted, "It was nice to see all the goals." What do you think happens on match of the day? I genuinely think that there are some Conservative ministers that think on every other edition of Match of the Day, Gary Lineker has interrupted Liverpool versus Brighton to read sections of the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier about the loaded gun to people's heads, uh, to the BBC's head, and I've got a quote from you here. The, the rest of that is, the Conservative government in Britain are cultural vandals. Their aim is to dismantle the state Either the Conservative government will turn the BBC fully into just a mouthpiece for government policy, or they'll just get rid of them completely. Do you still think that? That's ambitious. Did I say that? Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like Keir Starmer at PMQs. Yeah, I genuinely am. Have, like, have you heard how good this guy is? Yeah, I was like, wow, that's some interesting talking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. Yes, I, I 100%. What a dumb question that was. I, what, I, Do you agree what, with yourself? Yeah, Mish no, I, yeah, yeah, funny. No, because also there are, you know, there are moments where y y you should be, you should feel free to change your mind, and there are things that you should, uh, you know, you should, you, you might say something and then find yourself disagreeing with yourself. But that is one thing I've said that I absolutely one hundred percent agree with. Yeah, I, you know, they, I, I do think that they are. They seem for people who claim to love Britain, they seem to absolutely hate most of Britain, and they seem to hate a lot of the stuff in Britain, and they seem to be very angry about Britain. <laughs> Yeah. Um, let's talk about Suella. I think this is an, uh, an appropriate jumping off point to talk about Suella Braverman then. Um, <laughs> Saida Sa Sa Varsi, the for well, she's a Tory peer and she's yeah. also the former Tory party chairman. She recently said that the Home Secretary is using racist rhetoric. Yeah. Do you agree with her? Yes, 100% I agree with her. Yeah. Why? Uh, I think that um, she has contradicted her own office's data. Uh, when she uses phrases like the majority of grooming gangs are the fault of British-Pakistani men, 
it's her own home office's data uh, that contradicts that. And I think that that is consciously and deliberately inflammatory language. And I do think that um, side of RC is to be applauded because, you know, there are there really aren't enough. There haven't been enough public voices from the Conservative Party talking about the way the current iteration conducts itself. And I mean, I think that um, you know, I definitely think that I think I, I don't know what else it is. What else is it? Uh, the Home Office's own statistics contradict the things that the Home Secretary is saying. So either the Home Secretary is an is incompetent or racist, or both. I'm throwing, that that out. <laughs> I'm throwing that possibility. <laughs> I'm throwing that possibility open. But the refusal to withdraw those remarks is either the result of incompetence or racism. And I would be thrilled for Suella Bradman to pick which one of those is. I'm going to play devil's advocate to you for a second. I don't mean to think for a second that I'm sort of taking the Home Secretary's side in this. But I think someone might say to you, is it possible for a brown woman to be racist towards other brown people coming to the UK? Yeah, it absolutely is. Tell me why. Yeah, it absolutely is, because you, racism isn't just name-calling. You know, it isn't just, you know, a huge part of it is screaming slurs in the street, but racism also exists on a structural level. It's coded into our institutions and has been for hundreds of years. So the idea that we would suddenly, you know, in 50 years be able to just end centuries of structural prejudice is kind of naive. You know, sometimes I do think we're actually doing pretty well. Like we are, you know, the, you know, we are, you know, Martin Luther King was observed of the arc of moral, what was it, the arc of? The arc of progress bends towards. Yeah, the arc of, Progress. The arc of history bends towards progress. Yeah, it's. I think we got there in the end. I think we are like. I think we're slowly part of that arc bending. So like, definitely, this country is less racist than it was forty or fifty years ago. But racism also exists on a structural level, and if you are a brown person participating in those power structures, there is a chance that you will be enacting structural prejudice, right? Because that's just the way that these systems are designed to operate. But equally, you know, look, and there is, I have been asked on several occasions about Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak, and don't I think that it's wonderful that um, these uh, British Asian people are now uh, sat at the apex of our political establishment. And I don't. And I thought I would. I thought regardless of what political party, I thought that there would be a symbolic significance uh, that I would feel moved by. But I think the problem is that Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman, the, sim the symbolism is much more complicated because a lot of their political careers have been spent throwing other brown people under the bus. And I think that this, the, the sort of grooming gangs thing is kind of a perfect example where, you, you know, you've got someone like Suella Braverman who is basically using racist language. And that's, 
that seems to sit at odds with this idea that this is a huge societal victory. Because how do you achieve those positions of, those positions of prominence? It's, it seems to me that you achieve those positions of prominence by being willing to step over the bodies of other marginalised people. And that's where I find not just that there's no symbolic value, but the symbolism of Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak is actively troubling to me. That's a really uh, powerful answer. I think we might want to have a little bit of a gear shift before we finish this interview because it might be a bit depressing <laughs> to, to leave things there. So let's just, let's, let's, let's move on. Another one. It's the Politics Show podcast. What's your best day in comedy? Best day you've ever had? The best day I've ever had in comedy? Yeah. I don't know, there's been a lot of good days, you know? Like, um, I, I I did a tour show in the Hackney Empire. Um, I've done a few of them, but the first one that I did felt quite significant because in 1999, I went to see, goodness gracious me, do a live show at the Hackney Empire. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever seen comedy live. So that was quite a significant, that was quite a significant day for me, I think. And my family were all there, as they were when we went to see Goodness Gracious Me. So I think that felt like quite a significant thing. You made it up there. And yeah. what about, conversely, worst day in the office, worst day in comedy? Again, so had? many. <laughs> like, comedy is filled with indignities. Um, I mean, one of my favorite, like, like low point days was, um, Oh, I mean, the times I've had to leave, the, the times I've had to be escorted out of a venue, that feels like a low point. The, the fact that your comedy has gone down so poorly that you have to have a security detail, that, the times that has happened to me always feels like a total low point. Is it, uh, it happened so many times you couldn't count, or is there a specific instance where that's it's happened, happened to you? It's happened a couple of times. Obviously, the funniest time was when somebody threw a bread roll at me, but that my security, my security detail was Miles Jupp, which sort of <laughs> makes it even funnier. Yeah. Just the one man in comedy <laughs> not qualified to protect me physically. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about comedy is that when you sort of look back on it, you realise I'm very fortunate to do this job, you know? And so really what you're left with is just a memories of the good days and the bad days sort of become funny. You know, what, what, at the time, I'm sure this was like a deeply traumatic thing because I'd only been doing stand-up for about a year. But in 2007 at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I actually got chased off stage by a heavy metal band <laughs> because they had double booked our slot and the band was supposed to go on as I went on stage to do my 10 minute set. And like I, my mind snapped, like in that moment, I think there's so many like, especially when you first start out and you're very nervous, your heart rate is going, your body is filled with adrenaline. And so for some reason, I became fixated on this idea that I was booked to do 10 minutes, I'm going to do 10 minutes. And the level, and also the gig was quite empty. But as my set went on, more and more people started coming in because I think someone went out into the street and was like, Guys, if anyone wants to see a fat Indian bloke get his head kicked in by a heavy metal band, that's happening in here. This is the best show in the Edinburgh Fringe's history. And the venue had filled out waiting to see this confrontation between me and the heavy metal band. And I just kept doing my set and they would, the disquiet was building. And then a man walked on stage who had a big white beard. So I said, oh, ladies and gentlemen, ZZ Top, which he didn't enjoy. Yeah, I think he was funny. not a fan of the top. 
and he came towards me. I thought he was going to hit me, but instead he just very slowly set up a drum kit around <laughs> me <laughs> while I was on stage. Nice. But that's the that's the fun thing about comedy is that the the things that feel very terrible to you in the moment end up becoming kind of funny stories. Uh, good Lord, the building just farted. Yeah, it's the waste pipe. Not what even joking. The hell? Wow, somebody has... Yeah, we're, in the, we're in the basement, yeah. Someone has absolutely had a bad lunch. <laughs> Fucking hell. That, and that, has, that is flying around the building. Someone has really... Someone needs to consider more fibre in their diet! Should we leave it there? <laughs> is that the closer? Mish Kumar, thank you so much for taking the time. Exactly. I appreciate it. Cheers. Exactly. It's the Politics Joe Pubcast. If you enjoyed that conversation, let us know at politicsjoe underscore UK on Twitter or leave us a review wherever you're listening. We've got a ton of interviews we can drop into this feed if you want us to. And if you want more political chat with a healthy side of humour, make sure you're subscribed to the Politics Joe Pubcast wherever you get your podcasts or you're a silly goose. See you on the next one. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.